Well, please do take a Bible or your device and turn to Colossians chapter 2. It's page 984 if you're using the church Bibles. Next week, God willing, Joe and I will be down in Hearn Bay with the buses with Simon and Victoria um, for their church anniversary weekend. Uh, may I take greetings from Duke Street? Yes. Excellent. Thank you. And the weekend after that is our World Mission Sunday, and we're looking forward to having Chris Hawthorne with us, who was principal of, we prayed just now, Ivan prayed for the Proclamation Institute Zambia, and Chris was principal there until last summer, so he's going to be our speaker in two Sundays' time. So do bear that in mind and come for World Mission Sunday. Great, it's Colossians 2, verse, we'll, we'll pick it up in verse 6, and we'll read through to verse 15. Remember, 6 and 7 is really the heart of this letter. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, See to it, or watch out, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Well, let's pray together and ask God's help. Father, these are deep and profound words that we have read. But we pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul to write them, would come among us this morning and be our teacher and point us to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. People trafficking is a terrible thing, but unfortunately very common in our world and in the history of the world. A promise is made of a wonderful new life in another country with a good job, but you are being deceived and led down a path which will lead to a form of slavery from which you may find it very hard to escape. 
And when we read stories of these things, we read about victims with sadness and perhaps a sense of relief that it hasn't happened to us and we think never could happen. Well, the shocking truth is that it could happen to you as a Christian. Because, spiritually speaking, Christians are vulnerable to being trafficked. Now, Paul has just encouraged his readers to walk on with Christ as your Lord. But, verse 9, he says, watch out. Sorry, verse 8, he says, watch out. There's a, there's a note of warning in the word. Watch out that no one takes you captive, kidnaps you. You see, there are Christian teachers around who will try to kidnap you by their ideas, their, their philosophy, their spirituality. Watch out, verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy. He's not talking about philosophical teaching. He's talking about styles of thinking, ways of thinking, and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or principles of the world, the basic ideas of the world. Maybe spiritual forces, but something very basic about the world, and not according to Christ. These kidnappers, these traffickers, will spin a narrative of how you're missing out, fear of missing out. You don't want to miss out, do you? You could live life to the full, spiritually speaking, if only. Well, complete the sentence. But Paul says, look, their ideas, this philosophy, this narrative that they're spinning you is empty. It's not full. Do you see that word he uses in verse 8? And empty. They claim that the glass is full, but there's nothing in it. Tip it up. It's empty. And their claims are, are therefore deceitful. It's empty deceit. You're being scammed spiritually. Do you realize that? Oh, it may be dressed up in the language of ancient tradition. So it might be a, a human tradition, but it's not the Word of God. And these people are effectively people traffickers, spiritually speaking. Now, what are they actually offering to Christians? Well, what's clear from verse 9 is it's not according to Christ. It doesn't focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And from verse 16 onwards, when we look at this next time, we'll see the kind of things that were on offer from these kidnappers, these traffickers. But first, here in verses 8 to 15, Paul wants us to get crystal clear on one thing. Don't be fooled. You have been filled in Christ. Don't be fooled. You have been filled already in Christ if you're a Christian believer. For, verse 9, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, it's not something that, it's not just a, a divine spark or some divinity that's found in Christ and in other gods. No, this is something uniquely found in the body of Christ, as it were, in Christ in his incarnation. And it's the whole fullness of deity. There is no other deity or amount of deity outside of Christ, if you like. That's the point he's trying to make. You don't look elsewhere. You look to Christ. 
I mean, it is an extraordinary statement, isn't it? If you look again at verse, verse 9 and just think about what he's saying. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Wow. But there's more to it than that. Verse 10. You have been filled in him. This Christ who is the head over all rule and authority in the universe, he fills you. He has filled you. Note, note the past tense. You have been filled in him. It's already happened if you're a believer in Christ. Don't let anyone deceive you into thinking otherwise. Now, this phrase, in Christ, is a favorite of Paul's. <clears throat> what does it mean? Well, it's a classic essay title for theological students. When I studied theology, I remember doing the essay of what does Paul mean by the phrase in Christ? Well, it's talking about a solidarity with Christ, a union with him, so that what is true of Christ is true of the believer in Christ. Imagine a baby growing in its mother's womb. Yes, it is a separate person, but it is living in its mother. It derives its life from its mother, and what its mother does, so the baby does. If its mother goes for a swim, the baby goes for a swim in its mother. If the mother climbs a mountain, the baby climbs the mountain too, in its mother. The baby lives in mother. Well, I know all analogies break down, but I hope that's some help. But the Christian lives in Christ. They derive their spiritual life from Christ. Where Christ is, so they are, spiritually speaking. And Paul applies this in two areas which we'll look at for the rest of our time, which I think is summarized in the phrase in verse 13, where he says, God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Made alive, forgiven. So first then, in Christ, you already have the fullness of new life. Now, as we saw in our readings, um, back in Deuteronomy, which was when the people of Israel were poised after 40 years of wandering in the desert to enter the promised land, and Moses is preaching his final series of sermons to them before he goes off and dies. And he tells them that if they wander, <clears throat> God will bring them back back to the land, and that whatever happens, one day, they who, the males anyway, have been circumcised in the body, one day God is going to circumcise all of them in the heart, circumcise their hearts. And we see from Romans 2, written hundreds and hundreds of years later, that this is fulfilled in the new covenant by the Spirit of God. And Paul explains that true circumcision is circumcision that is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So in other words, interestingly enough, it clarifies that the New Testament equivalent of physical circumcision is spiritual circumcision. It's not baptism. It's spiritual circumcision. And I think here in verse 11 of Colossians, Paul is talking about the same thing. He's talking about Christian circumcision, what he calls the circumcision of Christ, which is, as he says in Romans 2, Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. It's something which involves, verse 11, the putting off of the body of the flesh. Flesh here probably in the sense of sinful human nature. 
Physical circumcision removes a small flap of skin. Spiritual circumcision removes the whole body of sin. It deals with the whole issue of sin in your life. And this happens when you become a Christian. God does, if you like, spiritual heart surgery on you, which affects your whole body, your whole life, and deals with your sinful nature decisively once for all. And baptism, of course, is a powerful picture of the same reality. That's why Paul talks about it in verse 12. Having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Now, some people think, Paul, isn't it a bit confusing to talk about circumcision and then talk about baptism? How do you relate the two? Well, both are true experiences of the Christian believer. Spiritual circumcision, which is what, it's another way of talking about regeneration of the heart, and baptism of the body. The assumption in the New Testament is that when anyone believed, they were immediately baptized physically. There was no separation between their conversion and their baptism. And Paul is saying, if you're a Christian believer, your heart has been circumcised. You cannot be a Christian without it. And if you're a Christian believer, your body has been baptized, or it should have been. The Bible knows nothing of an unbaptized believer. Talking of which, would you another baptism? We've rejoiced to have a couple in the last couple of months. Well, someone is determined to be baptized in the next few weeks, and we're planning a date probably at the beginning of July. So if you're someone who is a Christian and has not been baptized, come and talk to me afterwards. But I think also here in Colossians, Paul is actually having a dig at some people. He's having a dig at those spiritual people traffickers who were trying to get Christians to be circumcised as a way of greater commitment and deeper experience of God. Now, I doubt very much if anyone here has ever had another Christian come up to them and say, do you know, if you want to go on with God, I think you should be circumcised. Don't think anyone had that experience? No, me neither. But read your your New Testament and you discover, for example, in Acts 15, that there were Jewish background Christians insisting that Gentile converts to Christianity be circumcised physically. Surely they had to if they wanted the the full package of Christian experience. And Paul's response, Gentile Christians have already been circumcised spiritually. That's what makes them truly God's people, true Jews. The language he uses quite provocatively in Romans 2. But the point for us is this. If we have faith in Christ... And he's talking about faith in Christ. You can see that in verse 12. It's through faith in the powerful working of God relating to your baptism. It's about faith. Then if you have faith in Christ, you are in Christ. You are united with him. And therefore, you have entered into the full experience of Christ. Don't let anyone come along and whisper in your ear and tell you that you're missing out in some regard. You are not. Look at verse 10. You have been filled 
in him. Past tense. So don't believe anyone, even if they're preaching in front of church, who tells you that somehow your faith in Christ is inadequate, that you need this or that experience, that in your church or you need to change your style of music or you need to adopt a better liturgy. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there shouldn't necessarily be changes in style of music or that there can't be changes to a liturgical practice, although it's interesting, isn't it, that the most liturgical churches in the history of the church are the deadest now. But it's not going to give you a deeper spiritual experience. It's not going to give you more of Christ if you change your style of music or if you adopt a better liturgy or if you read this book or go to that conference. I mean, every couple of weeks, I get an invitation on email to some conference or other somewhere in this country, which is basically promising me that if I go along, then what I will get there and bring back to the church will transform the life of this church. And frankly, I don't believe it. That's not how it works. What we need is the fullness of Christ that we already have realized. We have it. We just need to be reminded of it. You have full life in Christ. Life as full as it's possible for the Christian life to be this side of glory. Sure, when Christ returns, the new world will be brought in and our bodies will be transformed. We'll no longer get old. No more tears. No more pain. No more death. No more separation. That is the thing that's coming next. But between now and then, we have the fullness that God intends for us in Christ. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And secondly, in Christ, you already have the fullness of sins forgiven. Verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Uncircumcision of the flesh, uncircumcision not belonging to God's people, of your flesh, the sinful nature. Because of your sinful nature, you were outside of God's people. That's what that's saying. God has made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, it's so easy to take for granted the forgiveness of sins. If you were brought up in a Christian home, I'm sure you were taught from your mother's knee about how Jesus died for your sins and how wonderful that is. And we can ask him to forgive us our sins, and he does, and he will. But it's so easy because we're familiar with it over many years, maybe, or because we so easily deceive ourselves about how good we are when actually we're battling with sin every day that we devalue the forgiveness of sins as if it were cheap to buy and of limited value. And Paul is saying, don't you realize what was going on when Christ died on the cross? Verse 14. He was cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Sin is like debt. Now, I don't know if you've ever got into debt or got badly into debt. 
some people just spiral down. It goes right over their head, and they begin to realize that in their lifetime they will never be able to pay back their debt. I hope that's not you. But spiritually speaking, sin is like a debt like that, like the debt that hopefully we've avoided in terms of money, but in terms of our debt to God, we're deep in debt. And there's no way we're ever going to be able to pay it back, even if we lived a thousand lives. And then Paul uses this phrase in verse 14 about Christ, when he died on the cross, set aside our debt, nailing it to the cross. What is he talking about there? Do you remember when Jesus died and Pilate had the charge against him put on a placard above his head? And it just said, the king of the Jews. That was a kind of mockery on Pilate's part. Anyone who claimed to be a king in Roman territory was guilty of treason against the emperor, worthy of the death penalty. So for any passerby looking at Jesus hanging on the cross and seeing the king of the Jews, they would realize he was, from the Roman perspective, an imposter who was claiming something which was quite wrong and for which he deserved to die. Now, it's as if Paul is saying, you need to think about this, because the charge above Jesus on the cross has been changed. It now reads, the debt owed by your name. is charged against Jesus. The reason he's hanging there, dying on a cross, is because of your sin, your debt. It's above him. It's there, nailed to the cross. And as a result, since he died to pay our, off our debt, our record is cleared. The record of debt that stood against us, to use the language of verse 14. We are free of debt. Now, if we really had a grasp of how much we owe, how much we're in debt to God, we would be leaping out of our seats at this point with joy. And yet Paul goes on to paint an even bigger picture of what happened at the cross in verse 15. He says what was going on there was that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. All the rulers and authorities that might ever wish to use the evidence of, of our sins against us have been disarmed. Imagine that the last day has come and you are standing in the court before God and the prosecuting barrister enters court for the case against you and he's carrying one of those enormous document cases. Have you ever, have you ever been at the Royal Courts of Justice and seen, well, it's normally the, <clears throat> the junior lawyers who have to carry them, as I recall. <clears throat> enormous, great um, document bags coming into court. And the prosecuting barrister lays it down on the desk in front of the court and in front of the judge, and with a great flourish, opens the case. And to his shock and horror, there's nothing in it. It's completely empty. Not a single sheet of paper. 
And in his rage, he demands to know what has happened to the evidence. Who has taken the evidence? And then the Lord Jesus stands as your defending lawyer. And he produces as his single exhibit a picture of the cross, his cross. He is on it, dying. And clearly visible above his head is all the evidence against us, nailed to the cross. The prosecuting barrister is then instantly arrested and handcuffed and led out to join the long procession of those who are in the victory parade of the Lord Jesus, our conquering king. In history, it's often been the case that the victorious general, when he gets back home to demonstrate that he has won the victory, this is the days before television and instant reporting, he brings a whole lot of the people he's enslaved, particularly the leaders of those he's conquered, and he puts them in a triumphal procession behind him and shows them in chains marching through this or being marched through the streets to demonstrate his victory. And that seems to be the picture here, that Christ has not only disarmed the rulers and authorities by taking away the evidence that they could use against us, but he's put them to open shame. They have opposed God, and look what happens to people who oppose God. He's triumphed over them by the cross. The very place they thought they'd got him, he beat them. The very place they thought shows that he's lost, he wins. And for us, the ones who follow the crucified Messiah, is it a thing of shame that we follow a crucified Messiah? No, it's a thing of glory and victory because in following him, we're following someone who has taken our debt and nailed it to his cross. It's a dramatic picture of the victory of Christ, a powerful, irresistible, irresistible dominant, total victory, cosmic in its scale. The rulers and authorities have been disarmed, shamed, triumphed over and there is no disputing it now at the end of time well, what's the primary application of this for us well it's very simple isn't it it means that if our trust is in Christ as verse 13 puts it then God has forgiven us all our trespasses. And the longer we live, the more trespasses we commit. Every day that goes by, at least in our heads, if not with our words and our bodies, we trespass. We go across the line. And God knows. And the book of evidence against us just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the idea that God in his mercy and grace should take all the evidence that there is against us, or to use the language of verse 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal provisions, all the, the pages and pages of clauses and examples of our trespasses, and nail them to, a, to the cross, set them aside. That is the most wonderful truth that we can hear. And we must never lose sight of the extraordinary grace and mercy that is shown to us by God in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us. 
we must never lose sight of the amazing power that is being demonstrated in achieving this and the wonderful eternal consequences that follow from it. Maybe you're not yet a Christian here this morning. Well, do you see what God's power is able to give you? It's able to give you freedom from your record of debt against him. It can be set aside, nailed to the cross, instead of put against you on the last day. So that when the prosecuting barrister stands up, there is no evidence. It's been taken. It's been dealt with. That is a wonderful thing. Let me plead with you, if you're not yet a Christian, if you'd like to accept this offer and put your trust in Christ and know the freedom from your debt that he gives. And if you are a Christian, then please don't be, don't be fooled by the spiritual traffickers. There are plenty and they will continue to do their business and peddle their wares till the end of time. But don't be fooled. Realize that in Christ you already have life to the full in this age. You have that new life raised with Christ. And we'll, spell out in, we'll see spelled out in chapters 3 and 4 how that applies to some of the relationships of life. You already have that new life. You already have a forgiven life through Christ's death. You, you sit there right now as a fully forgiven child of God. In Christ, you already have life to the full. Let's pray. You have been filled in Christ. Father, those of us who have put our trust in him, please help us to enlarge our understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ, his magnificence as the one in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily and through whom we, as those who trust in him, have been filled. Thank you for the removal of our record of debt through his death on the cross. Thank you for the new life we may enjoy through sharing in his resurrection. And Father, if we're not yet trusting in this Christ, would you move us by your spirit? Would you circumcise our hearts and change us from within? For Jesus' sake, amen.